I was just reflecting a little before coming in on uh, on this theme of immediacy. It reminded me of uh, a kind of simple, almost um, intangible teaching that I had myself about it uh, a long time ago, probably 20-something years ago when I was living in India. And um, on the path I would take in the place I was living, there was a a sadhu and a a Hindu hermit um, living in a little hut by the side of the river. And I'd take the path along the river. And uh, I'd heard about I'd heard different things about this guy living there, but I hadn't seen him ever in the in the time I'd come back and forth. And one day I was going along the river, and I can't remember where I was going or what I was going for, but I had some kind of purpose in mind. And uh, the Baba, the Sadhu, was sitting outside his hut as I walked past. And as I passed, he called to me. He said, come, come, sit. Let's talk. And I said, oh, n- not now, Babaji. I'm going somewhere. Not now. And he looked at me and he made this hand gesture like this. And he looked straight in my eyes and he said, if not now, then when? And of course, one can see that conventionally, Right? That's the way we, we relate to, uh, of course, there's a conventional sense of, of now and then, now and when, now and later, and before, etc. And if not now, then when? Well, maybe this afternoon. And yet, there's something in the kind of piercing regard and in the questioning gesture of his upturned hand and in the directness of the question that was very clear that he wasn't speaking in a conventional way. If not now, then when? Oh. And uh, the way we might sometimes, by our sensitivity to the fragility, the preciousness, the mysteriousness, the intangibility of this moment, when we might be woken up to the here and nowness of life. And the, the word, the, uh, the Pali word the Buddha used, uh, yana bhutata. Yana bhuta, here and now, ness, ta. And in, in India at the time of the Buddha, there was a, a big thing to have the darshan, to get the vision to have the meeting with uh, various um, illustrious teachers or with the deities, statues of deities in the temple. And still now in India, a lot is made of that experience of darshan. Darshan means the, the, the vision of or the direct contact with. And because the Buddha was a teacher in that environment, people also sought out his darshan. And uh, what he what he said was, what you really need is yana buddha dasana, the darshan of the here and now, to see into this moment, 
this experience. And so that's what we've been doing, right? Through in the in the time we've been here. Just exploring life's immediacy. And no doubt much of that exploration being seeing all the ways in which we we move away from it or we we seem to move away from it and we feel like we've moved away from it even though of course we can't we can't be elsewhere like we were saying earlier this afternoon and yet even that process so even if our investigation of the here and now is mostly one of seeing all the ways in which I get carried away Again and again and again and again. Even that process, if we look carefully, is very instructive of the here and nowness of life. Because however obsessed I get, however caught up I get, however much I invest in that fantasy or that idea or that regret or that uh, whatever it is, Sooner or later, presence re-establishes itself. Life's imminence is way more powerful than my petty little uh, mind productions. And so we say, like we were saying earlier, we, we like to take ownership of it. We say, oh, I got caught up and then I became aware. But actually, if we look carefully, that's not really what's happening. That layering, which I spoke about this morning, and I'll unpack a little more as uh, as these reflections go on. That layering happens, and yet, no matter how much I get caught up in it, it's life's here and nowness that sooner or later just reasserts itself and reminds us that we're here. Right? You know what I mean. You go, oh yeah, I'm thinking about this. I'm lost, lost. I'm too lost. I ca- how can I say I became aware? No, I'm totally lost in that uh, mind production. Lost in that thought, lost in that memory. And yet, at some point, it just becomes obvious to me. It just becomes obvious that that's what's going on. That I'm lost in thought. Now, how did that happen? I didn't, I didn't uh, remind myself that I was lost in thought. I was lost in thought, too, too lost to remind myself of anything. Oh, but life is yana butata. The here and nowness of life just can't, can't fail to make itself felt. So even though we have the sense in meditation practice, and that sense is supported by the encouragement from me, be present, stay here. Allow yourself to be established in the here and nowness of things. That instruction sort of gives us the sense that that, that's, that's what should be happening. That the being carried away somehow shouldn't happen or that as I progress or deepen in meditation those mind productions will cease and then I'll just be left with the here and nowness but mind productions don't cease and hoping they would cease while understandable when they're particularly kind of uh, torturous 
actually, if they did cease, we'd be really like lobotomized. You know? Hello? So, there's something instructive, actually. There's something for us to really learn about life's here and nowness through the fact that mind moves. And that despite however lost I am, it's noticed. It's seen. It's like the rug gets pulled out from underneath it by life's hereness. And then rather tragically, of course, very quickly, because we're so habituated to all those mind productions, very quickly, no sooner has the rug been pulled out of it, than we say to ourselves, oh, I got caught up. Where was I caught up? Oh, I was caught up in thinking about... And off we go again. So we don't give ourselves the opportunity to see what's really happening and actually to, to really understand the significance of what's happening. The significance of what's happening is that despite me having cultivated decades of getting caught up again and again in endless mind productions, life keeps on saying, hello, here I am. Here it is. This is just an empty mind production. Life, in other words, keeps inviting us again and again and again and again, ceaselessly, tirelessly, completely reliably. Life keeps inviting us back. And so those moments in meditation that tragically we easily take as a moment of a recognition of the failure of our practice. Oh no, I was caught up. Actually, those are moments of great opportunity. Opportunity to recognize, oh, it was just a mind production. Opportunity to celebrate the fact that no matter how caught up I was in it, just a moment ago, life's kind of (coughs) pulled the rug out. Life's revealed its here and nowness. In that moment, there's absolutely no need for the mind production to continue. Opportunity that we easily tell ourselves is some evidence of the failure of our practice to be present that turns out actually to be presence itself. So pay attention to those moments. That layering that we spoke about a little this morning, some of you evoked as a kind of a helpful way of speaking about what's happening. Right? Rather than the, the, this either-or model, like somebody was saying. Rather than having the idea either I'm present or I'm not, which gives the sense that I could somehow leave the immediacy of things to go somewhere else, which, as we start to see, isn't really what's happening at all. Actually, what's happening is that within the infinite, edgeless context of this, this freely abiding awareness, this freely unfolding life. Within this here experience gets built up. 
gets layered. Again, the Pali word, for those of you who kind of track the Buddhist references to this stuff, and if you don't track it, there's no need. For those of you who do the Pali word, the Buddha used this papancha, which literally means that building up or layering. And we tend to get, the more layers there are, the more entrenched we get in our identification with experience. And yet what's interesting is that at, at any moment, doesn't matter how many layers we've gone, that recognition of, that it's just layers can really can let the whole sort of house of cards dissolve. So maybe that there we're actually abiding in some sensitivity to life's hereness. Breaths just coming and going. Sounds are just happening. And yet, and so those the the layers or the the appearance of, of experience, the mind movements aren't getting any purchase particularly. Just happening. Sound of a bird happens, or the thought about the sound of a bird happens, or the thought about the fact that there was a thought about the sound of a bird happens. Right? There's some layering there, but then it's not getting any purchase. And the layering gets problematic when it gets a purchase on consciousness, or in other words, when we identify with it. So the first layer is just called <coughs> freely arising experience. There's nothing we could do about it. There's nothing we need to do about it. It's just the sound of a bird. Or it's just some sensation in the knee. So maybe if we use the example of sensation in the knee, it tends to be a little more charged than the sound of a bird, although it's extraordinary how charged people can get here at Gaia House about the sounds of the birds. Sometimes the coordinators have had notes (laughs) asking them to do something about the sound of the birds. So some sensation arises that appears in our leg, just a layer, and... It might be seen as just that. In which case there's nothing to say about it, nothing to do about it. And yet, we also notice how, and you've probably already had the chance to see uh, the variety of things you can do with the sensations in your leg, or back, or whatever. So some uncomfortable sensation arises. And then we tend to kind of to harden that layer. We've got we've got a you know some decades of accumulated experience, so or some decades of accumulated uh, habit around reacting to unpleasant sensations. Right? There's an, there's something inherent about unpleasant sensations in that they're unpleasant. That's just inherent. Right? Nothing itself is, unple- is inherently unpleasant, 
But there is something inherent about the fact that if something is felt as unpleasant, that's how it's felt. Unpleasant means we don't like it. It might be that there's just the free, the registering of that. And the curiosity about it. What do I mean by unpleasant? Oh, it's got a certain kind of um, heat to it, or a certain kind of density to it, that I don't like. And if that can be recognized, that in itself is a confirmation of life's free here-ness. Life has to manifest somehow. If there wasn't any experience, we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be able to say anything about what's happening. So life just does its thing. And right now, if I've sat still for 20 or 30 minutes... One of the ways life might be doing its thing is arising as some heat and discomfort in my leg. And yet, if it, so it might be that uh, recognition that's happening that, that allows that to be the confirmation of life in this moment. The way things are showing up. Or it may be that it's our decades of accumulated reactivity that are at play, which if they haven't been examined by us is probably what is happening. And then we tend to harden that layer, harden around the uncomfortable sensation. Oh no, my leg hurts. And then there's actually a withdrawal of sensitivity from what's actually happening. We don't experience the actual nuances the heat or the density. We don't experience it in the context of this wide, edgeless presence. Wherein that's not the only thing that's happening. Right? It's one among an endless amount of just constantly changing sensory phenomena. No, we harden around the layer and it starts to take up more space in consciousness. My leg hurts. It starts to become kind of the primary thing. We, we get desensitized to everything else. And once we've started down that track, we tend to keep on going. Because we're gluttons for punishment. Because hmm. we do have the opp- opportunity at that, time, at that moment to recognize, right? If there's enough presence... There's enough attunement to our experience we can recognize. Oh, I've gotten tight around that uncomfortable sensation. We can feel the, the sense viscerally how we kind of contract around it. How the not liking it becomes such a big deal that that's the main experience. The main experience isn't actually the sensation anymore. It's the not liking, the not wanting. And if we can recognize that, oh, quite naturally, we'll soften around it. And yet if we don't notice it, then the layering, the papancha continues. We add that next layer on of What am I going to do about it? Might be. Or why do I have to sit here like this? Or what a stupid idea it is to have the meditation last for so much amount of time. Or whatever. And so we harden into a layer of kind of reaction. <coughs> Indignation, frustration, 
fear maybe and then if we recognize that again that can undo the papancha right there if we really see all right we can feel how what our indignations like the kind of the hardening the sense of being right the sort of you know, that it feels like that energetically, right? or the or the, the or what the fear feels like when we start to anticipate. Well, it's it's already difficult. What's it going to be like in another ten minutes, etc., etc. So, if we recognise what's happening at that point, that actually undoes the layering, and that opportunity is always there. To, to, to find out about fear or indignation or whatever it is. And yet, if we don't notice, then the layering continues and we start to justify the feeling in whatever way we find, we find uh, you know, whatever reasons. It must be that uh, I, you know, I wasn't made to meditate or I, I, I must... Have, found, have been choosing the wrong posture or I must have the wrong amount of cushions or it must be the wrong amount of time that we're sitting for or something. And then we tend to, and you know, we can just keep going like this, right? Then we add the, the, other, uh, the next layer on of some fantasy of how it could be different. Right? So if, only, if I had three more cushions and one under my leg and, or if... If only the bell would ring. Or if, if the person in front of me would something. Or if, 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 if. And then we torture ourselves over the if. Any sense of presence, immediacy, is, is completely squeezed out by the if only. The tyranny of if only. And at whatever stage in that process, however many layers deep we are, life's awareness, life's immediacy is kind of here. That's where the layering is happening. It's not actually taking us anywhere. And so at any moment, there's the opportunity to investigate that. So whether you've got, even if you feel like you've gotten very far away from yourself in some way, if you feel you've gotten far away from presence or far away from just the the sense of ground or sensitivity to what's here, a usual uh, reaction to feeling far away is to try and get back. Just to stop, however far away you think you've got, in the moment where you just where life reasserts its imminence, just stop there. Give yourself uh, the time and space to actually feel the layer you're in. Feel your reactivity. Feel your indignation. Feel your confusion. Whatever it is. Because it's not a wrong thing. It's not actually something that's taken you away. It's the, just the layer of experience 
that right now is reflecting presence back to you. So any moment, any experience, any layer has the same opportunity within it. And like I say, with all this uh, speaking about immediacy, sometimes we we can get a little confused then about what a wise relationship is to past and present and future. Because of course we have to engage with a sense of past and present and future. Of course we do. And sometimes when people hear teachings about being present or being in the now or uh, you know, grounding one's attention in the immediacy of things, like I've been saying, then the question or the confusion arises, but if I was just to attend to the present, how would I manage? As if one would be losing the capacity to... Um, conceive of past or pre- or future or present. We, we don't lose any conceptual capacity. It's just that it becomes more efficient in many ways. Right? That rather than um, an anxiety-provoking relationship with past and present and future, we start to have a freer relationship. Because that's mostly what's happening, right? So people say, well, why, why be present? What's wrong? I, I, I've got great memories. Why shouldn't I just kind of enjoy my memories? Or I've got things that have happened that have been difficult and problematic for me, and I want to make sure they don't happen again, so why shouldn't I just keep like, trying to figure out what I did wrong in order to do it better next time? Those are the kind of engines, the sort of rationale, conscious or more usually unconscious, that drive our, um, our, our being seduced by our memories of the past. Or, hey, I've got something really great coming up next week. You know, so I'm, I'm <coughs> anticipating it, excited about it, so planning how much I'm going to enjoy. Or I've got something challenging coming up next week, and therefore I need to, what do we say I need to plan? What we need is I need to fret and worry and as if as if my fretting and worrying will actually help me to anticipate a moment that's not already here. So those are the ways our mind turns around what the Buddha calls the three fields of time, right? Past, present and future. It's interesting that often when we hear you we hear kind of simplistic teachings about being here and now that we tend to only refer to the two fields of time present, uh, future and past as if the present isn't a field of time but we can be in just as problematic relationship with the field of time that is the present as with the other two so how does that happen? in the past they, they basically each have either a positive or a negative charge to them Right? you go to the past 
positive charge called nostalgia, like we were just saying, oh yes, it was so great. Or negative charge, uh, regret. Oh God, it was so. When we go to the future, positive charge, oh, hope, fantasy. Or we go to the future, negative charge, um, anxiety, fear. And same thing with the with the present. We go to the, we we describe what's happening to ourselves. We kind of narrate the present with the spin of pleasant or unpleasant, enjoying or not enjoying. And you know that sense of being optimist or pessimist. Some of us look with a with a, a sort of positive skew on life, and some of us look with a negative skew on life. It's completely natural that our mind turns around the three fields of time. But it's worth investigating what, what's a skillful relationship to those three fields of time. Reflecting on, you know, when, when the, the memory of something, some sweet moment in the past arises. Beautiful. Beautiful. And actually what's happening is that it creates a sense of delight, of happiness, of enjoyment. That's a wonderful thing with all its associated brain chemicals of whatever they are, endorphins and um, another one I've forgotten the name of. Serotonin, thank you, and things. Great. It's not like we want to cut that off. But we can investigate when that arises a, a wise or a skillful or a free relationship with the positive memory of the past is just that. Memory arises, one's grounded in the here and now. One notices the memory, but more significant than just the memory, right? More significant than what happened, because it's hopelessly gone forever, what happened, is the way it gives rise to a feeling of happiness and joy. And one can allow that. It's kind of refreshing, delightful. But what we tend to do is we kind of indulge in it. We grasp after it. We want to hang on to it. We keep turning it around. And I'm not saying whether that's a right or good or bad thing to do, but I'm encouraging you to investigate. What does that do? It seems like it provokes Stress. Stress because we tend to compare how things are now with how they were. Stress because we tend to assume that uh, we sort of ought to be able to recapture that, etc., etc. And we might philosophically know that, we might agree broadly with the idea that, oh yeah, the past is gone. But see how you actually interact with the nostalgic memory that arises. The suggestion is that the more grounded your attention is in the here and now, the more you'll be able to, what the Buddha calls, press the honey out. Experience the momentary delight, happiness, satisfaction that arises from that positive memory and leave it alone. 
and be able to recognize it as a memory arising in this moment, having its beauty and disappearing. Simple, free relationship with the past. Similarly, sometimes the past, the memory of the past arises in some uh, negatively charged way, some uh, painful memory. Often, some painful memory that we can feel, like somebody was saying this morning, is undigested in some way. And we tend, as you're probably very familiar with, to go back and fuss over to replay endlessly what happened. We replay as it happened, although that replaying is very distorted, actually, through our own, the, our own emotional lens, if you like. We replay how it could have happened differently, as if that would make any difference to it, as if if I rethink it again and again and again, I can somehow change it. And that tends to be stress-provoking. It, it keeps re-stimulating what was troubling or difficult or painful without any resolution. And I'm sure you know yourself the experience of, re, of just of kind of getting caught up in this, that old story of what happened endlessly. You know, and that can go on for a long, long time without really making any difference. And yet we also have the opportunity for a skillful, free relationship. So that when that surfaces, grounded in the present, we can feel what's undigested in it. We can feel the way the hurt or the sadness or the remorse arises. And we can actually take care of it. And the story of it and the, the tendency to blame ourselves or another or whatever is just isn't so important as the digesting of whatever it is that's left over. The allowing the hurt or uh, remorse to kind of to live in us, to be to to be felt, to be digested. Mm. Same with the future, right? how that uh, anticipation of some positive moment in the future, and it might be some moment you know, way in the future, it might be some thing you're looking forward to next week, or it might just be, you know, the greatest fantasy I can think of right now is just if only the meditation bell would ring. Mm-hmm. And just to see, what, to study that. What do you do? There's the, the positive experience, oh yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. But actually, the really looking forward to that is very stress-provoking. Because you're trying, it's like you've, you've put your happiness out there on that future moment, and then you're trying to catch up to it. Right? You're trying to catch up to your happiness that you've decided is out there when the meditation bell rings, or out there next week, or out there in some other moment. That's stress-provoking. And yet, there's also the, 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 the wise relationship to that. If we're grounded in the present and the sense of, oh, I want, arises. 
I want that to happen. I want that moment. I want that experience. And often we're a bit afraid of our wanting. We're afraid of how powerful wanting can be. But actually there's a lot of dynamism, there's a lot of creativity, there's a lot of juiciness in wanting. And the wanting doesn't happen out there in some future moment. The wanting's right here. Oh, I want, I want. Let yourself want. Even if it's just wanting the meditation bell to ring. Let yourself want, but don't leave the wanting. Don't get so seduced by the object, what it is that I want to happen, that you leave, you lose the aliveness, the dynamism of the wanting. And you might find that what's most significant about wanting isn't the object that it's pointing to, but something in the dynamism of its, its appearance itself. Similarly, with the negatively charged, futurizing, that kind of as if we're kind of holding back against the future, putting ourselves back against it, of what we're uh, afraid of, anxious about, worried about. It's a kind of like a ghost, right? That we're already experiencing the stress for something that isn't here. And that actually we don't know how it'll be when it's here. And that invariably the, the fear of and resistance to something in advance is actually way bigger than the experience when we get there. Even just in small ways. It's like you know when you're inside looking out at the rain and, it's like, and you anticipate going out into the rain. It's like... It seems like it would be a terrible thing. Imagine being out there or you're driving in a car and you see someone walking in the rain. It's like, it's like the fear of the thing. And then you go and walk in the rain and it's fine. I know that's a very small example, although those of you who live in this country, it seems like you've had <laughs> plenty of opportunity recently. So how are, you, how are you negotiating the three fields of time? Right? So it's not a question of how should you be, but the invitation just to study the, 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 the way your mind moves and whether, whether your investment in that is actually provoking stress, difficulty, resistance, impatience and just to see does it have to be like that we often feel at the mercy of our reactivity but in a way that's what this practice is mostly about right? it's just about staying really curious about our everyday reactivity about the relationship I find myself having with life in this case, having with the three fields of time. And to see, is, is that built in? Does it have to be like that? Because an unwise relationship with what's happened, or what we hope will happen, or what is happening, 
produces stress. And when we're grounded in the immediacy of things, when we're cognizant of, when we're sensitive to presence, immediacy, then we just then we don't get into that tangle. Now the fruits of recognizing life's immediacy and actually making it our home are that it's deeply relaxing. Because we're already here. And that place we keep hoping to get to, called the happy place, the better place, the, the freer place, the quieter place, the place where my meditation suddenly gets all blissful and light, the place in our, that we keep hanging our happiness onto. It's impossible to get to another place. The fruits of exploring life's immediacy are that we can find ourselves already at home the ease of relationship with life that we're longing for is already available the accommodating of our experience however it is is already available. It's very much work to keep trying to manipulate the past and the present and the future. I mean, even even to say it like that, it's like, what kind of maniac, we might ask, what kind of maniac would try to manipulate the past and the present and the future all the time? Uh... <laughs> All of us. And yet it's really it's the it's the investigating that pro, that process that lets us actually see that it's a kind of maniac's activity. And that actually I don't have to do that. Life's holding us in its immediacy, allowing us to be here. Each sensation, each bird song, each movement of mind through the three fields of time. Each experience reveals it and invites us to relax into it.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.